This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Well, we will have a fiction choice. We will have a toaster challenge where a guest is given the length of time it takes to make a piece of toast to tell us about their favourite book. That'll be fun. And there's Poem of the Week, which this week features Pierce Hutchinson and news from the world of books in Ireland. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. And speaking of books, Enda, what have you been reading this week? Well, I've been reading an absolute masterpiece, Peter. It's historical fiction at its finest. It starts off on a summer's day in 1596. So it's far from being a contemporary story. A young girl living in Stratford-upon-Avon takes to her bed with a fever. There's pestilence throughout the country and her twin brother searches everywhere for help, but there's nobody at home. So from the very beginning, there's a huge energy to this story. Their mother, called Agnes, is over a mile away in a garden where she's growing medicinal herbs. And we get a very strong sense of this woman, almost a witch-like character, but also a very kind and loving person. Um, And the twin's father is working in London, so it's quite a contemporary marriage being depicted, even though it's 1596. And neither parent knows that one of the children will not survive the week. So we're we're wondering what's going to happen in this novel from the very beginning. The novel is called Hamnet, and it's by the very brilliant, I think, writer uh, Maggie O'Farrell. She's known to some of you for books like The Hand That First Held Mine, Instructions for a Heat Wave. Her memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, which came out in 2017, was a bestseller. And this book is up for the Women's Prize and and it is no mistake that it it should be up for it because it's absolutely brilliant read. Could I, could I ask, how much of this is based on, I mean, I know we probably don't know that much about Shakespeare's life. We know a few things. So how, I mean, it's a historical novel. Does she, does she stick closely to facts or is it invented or, you know, is, is this a recognisable Shakespeare? Well, actually, um, what's interesting about this novel, it is inspired by the son of this famous playwright who actually did die at the age of 11. That much is known. Maggie O'Farrell in her notes at the end does say that not a lot of facts were known. So this is a fictionalised version. It's Maggie O'Farrell imagining what impact the death of this 11-year-old boy would have on the mother and father. And of course, then imagining what impact creatively it had on the playwright William Shakespeare because just a few years after the death of his son, the tragic death of his son, he of course wrote the famous play Hamlet which isn't really about the death of a son. It is a son um, thinking about the death of his father and his obsession with this. But throughout Maggie O'Farrell's novel, there is a kind of a spectral quality to it. And every time this young boy appears, I often felt like I was watching a ghost, a young ghost, skipping through the pages of the novel. This is a beautifully written lyrical book. Fantastic. Can I ask, like, whose point of view is it? Is it actually... Um Spoken about me. Who, who's actually telling the story? Who who do we see? Uh, well, I, I understand why you keep asking that question, Peter, because it is unusual the way she doesn't even name Shakespeare. Um, she just calls him the husband. Uh, she's kind of placed the the bit players of the Shakespeare story centre stage. That's what I feel anyway, while the dramatist himself is never even named, as I've just said. So this is really primarily the portrait of a woman and her three children. I've heard it described as, as a book about grief would you would you go along with that 
Oh, it's absolutely um, a heartbreaking story. For instance, there are beautiful scenes in it where the, I don't want to give away too much of the story, obviously, but the love of the twins, the boy and the girl. And uh, there's a moment where the boy wants to give up his life so that his sister is saved. I found that actually extremely moving. There are parts of this novel where I actually became overcome with grief just reading it. And that, that just proves, I think, what a fantastic writer Maggie O'Farrell is. So do you get a strong sense of the of the period of the of the of the time the details of you know kind of 16th century England in it? Oh absolutely and that's what makes her such a masterful storyteller I think. She's obviously done her research but it seems seamless throughout the book. There's brilliant details in it. I didn't know for instance that Shakespeare was the son of um, a glove maker. Um she also gives you the story of how pestilence or plague reached England, the flea that boards a ship in Alexandria. But above all, Peter, I would just like to say that this this novel, Hamlet, is really, for all the historical details, it is a tender and unforgettable reimagining of a boy whose life has been all but forgotten had it not been for Maggie O'Farrell and this wonderful novel, and whose name was also given to one of the most celebrated plays ever written. Thanks for that, Enda. So that was Hamlet by Maggie O'Farrell, which is published by Tinder Press. And details of all of the books uh, talked about on the show are available at booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And now it's time for the Toaster Challenge, where we invite a guest in to have a chat, then talk about a book they love. And the trick is that they can only talk for two minutes the length of time it takes to make a slice of toast. So I would like to welcome today's guest. She is Christine Dwyer Hickey, Irish writer. She's an incredibly prolific writer. She's published nine novels, including The Cold Eye of Heaven and Last Train from Liguria. Her novel Tatty is now the 2020 Dublin One City One Book Choice. And her ninth, and I have to say outstanding novel, The Narrow Land, set in Cape Cod in the 1950s, portrays the marriage of Edward Hopper, the painter, and his wife, Jo. But it's also the life of an orphaned German boy staying for the summer close by. And this novel, Woohoo, has just won on June the 12th the Walter Scott Prize, and the judges have hailed it a masterpiece. And as if this wasn't exciting enough, on June the 20th, it was announced that Christine has also won the Dorky Literary Award for Novel of the Year with the same novel, The Narrow Land, which the judges described as luscious, enthralling and emotionally engaging. Christine, you're really, really welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks, Santa. Now, Christine, I'm sure you don't write um, for prizes, but still, it must have been exciting to have your novel so well acknowledged in the space of just a few days with not one, but two prizes. How did that feel? Well, it was a shock, I have to say. Um, I found out about the Walter Scott on a Monday and then on Tuesday I found out about the Dalky. I didn't expect either to even happen because of the lockdown. I thought they'd postpone it. Um, so it was a huge, huge shock. Oh, uh, God. So I got used to it now, though, a little bit, I think. <laughs> I know, but it's a sign of your modesty, Christine, that you got a huge shock. It's such a fantastic novel. I have read it not once, but twice. And oh, I keep really? passing it around, yeah, to everybody. <laughs> and they're all coming back with the same response, even before any of those prizes. Yeah. So that's yeah. great to hear from readers. Um, and I, I read somewhere that when you got the Walter Scott, you said you wanted to send thoughts out to the graves of Hopper and his wife overlooking the Hudson River, which is such a poetic thing to say, I think, <laughs> a few miles from New York, isn't that? where they're buried That's so it, yeah, I, I, yeah. I was I'm sure you've been asked this a million times but I'm just wondering what inspired you what was the first spark that inspired you to write this novel I mean have you always loved the paintings of Edward Hopper yeah, I've always loved his paintings but I had no intention of writing a novel actually 
To be honest, I sometimes used to be a little bit sniffy about people who write novels about real people because right. I, I think it's a bit intrusive. So then I go and do it myself big time. <laughs> you know, it was like the nuns used to tell us, um, and I'm sure they told you too, uh, and uh, like when they were talking about boys, one thing leads to another. And before you know where you are, it's totally you're there. There, but anyway, it was sort of started with a little boy. A visit to Cape Cod made me think I might give the Hoppers a cameo role, and then they sort of muscled in and took over the whole novel. So I know, and isn't that brilliant? The way suddenly a story can take you off on a journey you don't expect. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, I feel the same about poetry that that can happen as well. Yeah. Um, in this podcast, where we were also talking about Mar- Maggie O'Farrell's novel Hamnet, um, yeah. the historical novel about the death of Shakespeare's son, and she's brilliant at capturing um, the time and the period. And I think your novel is really quite seamless in the way it depicts the legacy of World War Two and that kind of ever changing you know, concept of the American dream. And I was just wondering, was it hard to depict those details and at the same time make the, make it seamless, which is what you do so wonderfully, Christine? Well, I think it's important when you're doing, you carry out the research, you try to become physically connected somehow. Like, as you know, write, writing is one, one of the arts where you can't actually touch your material. A musician can feel the notes with their hand and a painter feels the paint and the canvas and all that. And we can't. So we have to kind of physically try and find some way into the character, if that doesn't sound too mad. But for example, I sort of try to become each different character. When the boy on the train, you know, when he when he's going to Cape Cod or when he's remembering his train trip in Germany, when I was writing it, I was kind of doing this rocking thing like you do on a train, you know, and <laughs> yeah. you know, just like that. So if you look at it. Yeah. Yeah, it used to be like that. I didn't contrive it, but I just found myself doing it. And it was when I had to do it in reading later. I said, oh, that's why it's sort of, you yeah, know. Yeah, that's brilliant like that. that you just yeah. kind of give way to the story and you read yeah. into it. I, that was actually yeah. one of the things I loved about the novel, the way it's really excellent at shifting between the different perspectives of all the characters. So as you said, it's not just about the Hoppers and their yeah. decaying marriage, but it's also about every that family in Cape Cod and the two boys, because they've been really badly affected by the war as well. So yeah. that shifting between characters, as you said, it, it was just you trying to really get into the story and into the characters. I only do it from three real points of view. And that's yeah. the little German boy, Michael, and Joe and Edward Hopper. They're the only heads I go into. So I only, from their point of view, only see what they see. Yeah. And I think that always works for me um, when I'm writing. It's a sort of a trick, if you like, that I, I picked up very early on from Mrs. Dalloway, Virginia Woolf and, and right. Leo Bloom. Just get into their head and only see what they see and yeah, think, they think, you know. That's fantastic. And then the rest are just kind of uh, around and it's how they're they're perceived by the three main characters. Yeah, well, it's such a fantastic book, Christine, and I recommend it to everybody listening. But now, Christine, are you up for the toaster challenge? I'm up for the toaster challenge, yeah. (laughs) Okay, Okay. so Peter is just getting the bread ready to be toasted. It will take about two minutes, Christine, so no pressure. So when you're ready... Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to get right. so we're going to hear it can be your favorite book or just a book that you've come upon recently that you really love and okay. we're we're all ready to hear what it is and the toast okay. is going down and are you ready go yeah. okay well maybe every decade or so a novel comes along that kind of just knocks me sideways and a paragon by Colin McCann is one such novel and so I'm going to tell you a little bit about that now if I may at the very center of the novel is a true story two men Awesome, a Palestinian Muslim, and Rami, an Israeli Jew, 
both of whom lost daughters in the conflict. Basil's 10-year-old daughter, Abir, was a victim of a stray rubber bullet fired by the Israeli army. And the 13-year-old, Smadar, was the victim of a suicide bomb detonated by three young Palestinian men. The two fathers, in an effort to overcome the huge grief that they're going through, uh, join uh, at different stages, join a support group um, for bereaved parents. They forge a friendship. And from then on, their mission in life, their journey, if you like, is to travel the world talking about their experience and promoting the idea that without forgiveness and without empathy, there can never really be a peaceful solution. So that's at the hub of the wheel. And from there, the novel extends out in ever widening circles. Uh, it goes out over all sorts of terrains, goes up to the sky, goes back over the centuries. Um, there's, uh, it just looks at so much about life, uh, ancient civilization and modern warfare. Um, they look, he looks at uh, aeronautics and uh, the, the, the mentality of migratory birds, for example. There's religious, mythical, geographical fragments uh, all come into play. Circles within circles, stories within stories. It's a multifaceted, expansive, panoramic tour de force. It's only brilliant. Now, well, I, if I fill it all time. You do, yeah, go on. <laughs> and the paragraph is a diagram with an infinite number of countable sides. This means we can see the sides. And I think this is what, this is, this of course, is why it's called a paragon, because it, ca it can mean an infinite number of ways of looking at a conflict that goes way beyond trench and sides, but it can also mean the human experience and our place within the universe. It's a complex novel, uh, but for all its intricacies and its rich use of language and its a profound understanding of the human condition, it's not in any way a heavy read. Um, it's neither is it depressing. It's actually very life affirming, and um, I think it's it's. I really highly recommend it. I was blown away by it. The Guardian called it a novel that you don't read so much as feel, and I go away. I go with that. So that's a paragon of show, you know. <laughs> oh, it's great to see it, and it's fantastic okay. that book is out. And actually, Christine, I haven't read that book, and you have totally oh, sold it to me. Love it. You can't. That's what I love. Explain about how good it is. Oh my God. What yeah. I love, Christine, is your absolute passion for that book. So that yeah. is, I think everybody listening will be going, I'm going out to get that book. And it's a yeah. great one. If, uh, if anyone read it during lockdown, which is what you did, did you read it then during that period? Lockdown. And one night during lockdown, I woke up in the middle of the night and I had nothing to read. And I usually do, I do a lot of my reading during the night. And I just happened to have nothing. And it was there. And I said, I'm oh, sure I'll hardly read it again. But once I picked it up and I started to read it, he just wrote again. You have to keep closing it and thinking about what you just read and processing it. And it made me realise how little I know about the world, actually, how ignorant I am on the one hand. But it's very moving and it's it's just wonderful. Like It's a very unusual book. Yeah, because I remember reading his, his earlier novels like The Dancer and... Do you remember his short stories, Fishing the Slow Back River? Yeah, yeah. And when you were saying that you feel it more than you read it, I mean, he's a great kind of humane writer, isn't he? Yeah. So from listening yeah. to you, it sounds like that river of humanity is flowing, rushing through the novel. Right I don't know if you read the, his previous one, which was a very, one of a, a very, like a novella, uh, 13 Ways of Seeing Things. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. And I thought that was brilliant too. I love that. That was about um, him being attacked, wasn't it? Or he, he went no, to... He, 
was inspired, I think, by it. But there was a there's an old judge in it who's found in the snow in New York, and he's found dead outside a, a restaurant. And then they, they're trying to work out how it happens, you know, how that yeah. happens. But yeah. uh, it's 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 a very short novel. This is yeah. the opposite. This is a very big okay. novel. So anyway, I... It's a very expansive novel. And also the way you were describing it, it reminded me of me reading your novel. I had to go back and read it again. It seems, Christine, like today we've discussed two masterpieces, not just Colin McCann's, but also yours. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming in to Books for Breakfast. And um, you can't leave without us saying that all details of your book, The Narrow Land, your new and fantastic book, and Colin McCann's new and fantastic book, A Paragon, will be available on our website, www.booksforbreakfast.com com. Thank you very much, Christine, for coming in. Oh, thank you for asking me. Hope my toast is ready now. <laughs> okay, I think it is actually. Okay, see you soon, Christine. Bye. Bye. Right, so I think we're going to move on now to what you've been reading for breakfast or for dinner or indeed throughout the week, Peter. And I know you've brought in a very lovely collection of poems there, a poet that you've been thinking of all this week and hopefully for a long time. I was reminded because um, during all this kind of COVID period, I was posting poems on social media and I posted a couple by, by Pierce Hutchinson and I just kind of went back. I, I've just been rereading him um, a lot. And I mean, he's one of these poets. He, he, he would have been well known in, in his day, probably. I mean, his collected poems are published by, by Gallery Press. And when you say his day, Peter, around what time period are you speaking about? When did he write? I suppose he would have been well, 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 kind of, kind of 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, I mean, he lived, he lived a long life. Yeah, so he would have, I suppose, particularly come into his own around the kind of 60s and 70s. I mean, his first book was Tongue Without Hands, which came out in 1963. And then there was books like Explanations, 1969, um, Watching the Morning Grow, um, 1972. I suppose I shouldn't say this because it kind of dates me a bit, but I can remember. Um, you're just very I, old, I, I'm Peter. I'm very old, yeah. But, but <laughs> kind of like, you know, as a schoolboy, as a young sort of student hanging around in the Ablana bookshop at the top of Grafton Street and going in, looking at what was called the altar, where all the kind of poetry books were displayed and plucking down, um, watching the morning grow and, and others by, and the frost is all over by um, Pierce Hutchinson and reading them and being impressed by them. But he was very, he was very, inter- he was Dublin, he was local, but he was very international poet. He was very interested in translation. He translated from Spanish, um, Portuguese, the old Galeco uh, kind of Portuguese uh, language as well. And, you know, Irish, uh, and he wrote in Irish as well. So he kind of spun all kind of different cultures and, and those cultures affected uh, his own work as, as well. I mean, he just sounds so fantastic. It would be a real shame if a poet like him was forgotten about. No more than Hamlet, Shakespeare's son that we were talking about earlier, has been saved by Maggie O'Farrell. So I'm really delighted that you've brought Pierre Hutchinson in today, Peter. Also, he was friends with... Um, Poets who were still very much alive, like Elaine Quillanon. Well, he would have been, yeah, he would have been a very close friend of Elaine and MacDara Woods, and he was he would have been involved again with Leland Bardwell as well. The four of those were involved with um, the magazine Cyphers, for instance. So they were, yeah, they they would they would have been part of a group, in fact. Really, you've brought in um, his is it his collected poems there, as you said, published by I've Gallery. I've got his collected poems published by Gallery. And there's also another great book of his. Um, if anybody's interested, it's called Done into English, and they're a collection of his translations. Fantastic titles. I love them. And you've, you've chosen a poem that you really love. And can you tell us a little bit about why you've chosen it and why you love it so much, Peter? Well, it's a, I mean, 
in a way, it's hard to choose from from you know from uh, Pierre Sessions because there are so many I could have chosen. It does. True, actually, because one of my favourite poems by him is about uh, coming over Portobello Bridge. Do you remember that poem? Oh, fantastic. Know that, know, and any time yeah. I'm on a bus, not that we're on a bus at the moment because of the virus, but when I used to be on buses coming over that bridge, I would think of Pierce Hutchinson. Over the bridge and into Rathmines. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think in a way poetry has that ability to stick with you and to put images into your head. And I think Pierce is a poet like that, isn't he? He is. I mean, just, the one I'm going to read is actually a tiny, it's a tiny poem and it's about, a t- it's about tininess in a way. And that's why one of the reasons um, I, I like it. You know, almost nothing happens in it. That's, you know, and yet a huge amount happens in it at the same time. So it's called Cone, as in K-O-A-N. And it's, um, it's for William Cowper and Umberto Saba, you know, two, two poets, of course. So before you begin, Peter, this is your choice of your favourite poem of the week. It's yeah, it's my choice of one of the poems by Pierre. I mean, I could spend I could spend hours um, here reading lots of um, favorite poems by. Unfortunately, well, so, we don't have time for that. So. This, this is my breakfast choice. Okay, so this is this is um, as you spread the butter on the uh, toast choice. Okay, so clearing a kitchen surface too long cluttered, you hear the sound of spent matches touching the handle of a silver spoon, a gentle tinkle. You never heard that particular sound before. Il mondo meraviglioso. There's always a first time. Would unspent matches, lightly driven against the hands of a silver spoon, make a different sound? So maybe people could actually experiment. Maybe people could check out those sounds and see if they're different. Oh, well, very much. I thought actually that was the line in the poem, Peter. But anyway, thank you very much for reading that wonderful poem by Piers Hutchinson. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. Um, and I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, um, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this uh, podcast, you can go to Books for Breakfast breakfast.buzzsprout.com and yeah so we'll be back again next Thursday morning we'll have the toast on we'll have the kettle boiling we will have more books to discuss and we're looking forward to having you here so goodbye everybody goodbye